Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning. A little more than a year ago, or a little less than a year ago, July of 2018, uh, the world was riveted to their screens and news feeds about the story of the soccer team in Thailand that was trapped in the cave. I bet most of you in the room probably remember that. There was a group of young, um, young boys and their coach that were exploring a cave, and they didn't know the water was going to flood in while they were in there, and the water pushed in, and, and they had to run to the back of the cave, and they were trapped in there for a number of days. And it was a, a miraculous uh, rescue that they all came out. There was a whole international team. People flew in from all over the place that had expertise in cave diving to be able to get to these young men. All of them got out alive, and we all remember that. What you may not know is um, one of the members of that rescue team, one of the divers that was flown in, was a man named Josh Bratchley. He's from the UK. He flew in from the UK and just participated in that uh, very daring rescue. Nine months after that, fast forward now to April of 2019, just one month ago, Josh Bratchley was a lot closer to our home. He was in Tennessee, and he and four other diver friends went into a cave in Flynn's Lick. Anybody ever been to Flynn's Lick, Tennessee? I'm guessing not. It's in Jackson County, about a 90-minute drive from where we're sitting this morning. Now, why had they come? There was a cave that had been discovered a couple of years ago on private property in Flynn's Lick, and it only one or two other divers had ever gone in there, and Josh and his buddies wanted to explore it and map it out and see what was in there. Let me tell you a little bit about the cave. Before I do, we actually have a picture of Josh and the cave that he went into. So there he is, Josh Bratchley. Now, you can't see the cave because it's completely underwater. Unlike the cave in Thailand, which is a dry cave that was flooded by water, this cave is underneath. You go into this pond called Mill Pond, and you dive down under this very small little opening, and there's a 400-foot-long cave underneath it. It twists and turns. There are places in the cave where the clearance from the ground to the ceiling of the cave is only 18 inches uh, it, is, it varies in, in width. Some places it's quite wide. Other places it's just over three feet wide. So you can imagine trying to squeeze through with your diving gear and your tank underwater, uh, 18 inches high and three feet across, barely big enough to, for a person to get their shoulders in. This cave is a great example why cave diving is one of the most dangerous activities on the planet. That's no exaggeration whatsoever. Think about all that can go wrong. You're underwater, you're counting on your oxygen tank, but you can't even get back up to the surface quickly if, there, if there's something that happened. If you have a malfunction with the tank or you read the gauge wrong or you ran out of air, you're trapped in a cave. You can't get to the surface. Uh, one of the biggest dangers would be um, hypothermia. Most of the water under these caves, most of these caves, it's very cold, and that was the case 
here in Flinslick a month ago in April. It was very cold. If you're in that water too long, you will die of hypothermia. Uh, and the biggest reason that people tend to die in these situations, they get lost in the caves. You think about the twists and turns of the caves. It's kind of like a labyrinth under there. And they, they take in a line called the guideline. And they will bring it in from the outside of the cave, all throughout the cave. And that way, when it's time to go out, they follow the line back. If you lose the line, there's almost no chance of finding your way. And that was what happened to Josh Bratchley. Now, this particular cave has essentially zero visibility because of all the silt in the water. When it gets stirred up, even with that headlamp, which he has, uh, you can't see more than a couple feet in front of you. So at some point in time, Josh and his four friends were exploring this cave. Josh lost the line. We don't know if it broke or he let go of it somehow, uh, but he lost the line and he couldn't find it. The crazy thing about zero visibility, that line could have been inches from his face or it could have been 100 yards from his face. It doesn't even make any difference. He couldn't see. His friends didn't realize he was not behind them until they emerged from the cave and and looked for Josh and he wasn't around. Uh, Now the rescuer needed rescue. They went back in, tried to find him. Uh, They did three or four dives in the cave for hours and couldn't find their friend. Uh, They knew at some point in time, there's no way his oxygen could last that long. And so his only hope would be if he had found an air pocket somewhere in that cave. And not just any little air pocket. It would have to be big enough for him to breathe long enough or find some, somebody that could go in and get him. And not just that, it had to be big enough that he could climb out of that water because if he's in that water too long, he'll die from the cold. And so they didn't know what to do. They called 911. The problem is there's only a few divers on the face of the earth that have the level of expertise for this kind of cave dive. Um, they located a man in Florida named Ed Sorensen. We got a picture of Ed we'll put on the screen. Ed lives in Mariana, Florida for over 20 years. Ed has been rescuing people from situations like this. Now, I say he's been rescuing people. There have only been 10 successful rescue attempts from completely immersed or submerged caves. All the other times that Ed has gone in searching for someone, he's pulled out a body not a live person. That's how dangerous it is. Uh, Of the 10 successful attempts that are known, Ed Sorensen has five. He was the one to call. As soon as he got the call at 2.30 a.m., we're April 17th now, the the morning after uh, Josh Bradley went missing. Uh, Ed went to the airport as soon as he could, caught a flight from Tallahassee to Atlanta, connected through Atlanta, landed right here in Nashville. He was met on that afternoon by the Tennessee Highway Patrol with a helicopter, boarded the helicopter, flew him straight to the cave. After a pre-dive briefing where he talked to the other men that had been in that cave to learn as much as he could about the cave before he went in, Ed went in the water about 6 p.m. It had now been 27 hours after Josh lost his lifeline. Ed knew he would most likely find a body instead. After making his way almost the entire length of that 400-foot cave, he found an air pocket and a very much alive Josh Bratchley calmly sitting on a ledge beside the water. (laughs) And Nikki claps. We can all clap for that. Josh said, thanks for coming for me. Who are you? Ed Sorensen responded, I'm Ed Sorensen. And then... Josh gave him a knowing look. You see, the divers had never met, but they had known of each other. They had followed each other's exploits throughout the years. It's a very small world when it comes to elite cave diving. 
Ed guided Josh back out using the new guideline he had laid on his way in. And in less than an hour, two men emerged from the water to cheers from dozens of rescue workers gathered around. Josh even refused all medical treatment. The only thing he wanted was a pizza. <laughs> now, if someone had not gone in to get him, Josh Bratchley would not be breathing oxygen today. I find it interesting that James, at the very end of his letter, literally the very last two verses of the book of James, he gives us a rescue story. And it's a story no less dramatic than the story of Ed Sorensen and Josh Bratchley. And it's fitting that the book ends this way. Think about how practical this book has been. James hasn't minced words. He's spent five chapters explaining the dangers of the path of life and how it's faith in action that enables us to navigate them. Here's some of the topics we've covered in our study. Suffering, temptation, doubt, wealth, anger, the tongue. Who could forget Lloyd coming out in a giant tongue costume? I won't. Prejudice, wisdom, arguments, quarreling, the list could go on and on. It's as if James has sort of gotten to the end of the book and said, listen, the walk of faith, I hope you see by now, is not a straight line. There are twists, there are turns. Some of you are going to get lost. And before I finish writing this letter to you, it's as if he's saying, I want you to know that when that happens, you go back and get him. You go find him. You go rescue him. Now, somehow, I think this has gotten largely lost in today's church. When someone strays away from the faith or changes their beliefs, we're just as likely, actually, we're more likely to say, let them walk their own path. Who's to say that their path's not better than our path? We tend to not go after them. We tend to not go get them. I think there's some interesting reasons for that we're going to talk about this morning. So here's the outline of the message. We're going to talk about what the text is teaching us. It's a very simple two verses, not too hard to understand, what the text is saying, why we almost never do it today. And then finally, how we can begin to change that. So let's dive in. James 5, verse 19. My brethren, we'll pause right there. Brethren, of course, means brothers or sisters. Uh, in the New American Standard, it's a little bit of an archaic way to say that word brethren. No one uses that word anymore. So when you hear that word, think this is the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters of Christ. James has used this term 15 times in this relatively short letter. And this is, of course, the final, the 15th time he uses the word. Every time you see that word, remember, James was a pastor. He was a pastor in Jerusalem and his congregation had been scattered through the persecution and he still is shepherding them. And so he puts on this brothers and sisters hat. He puts on his pastor hat. He says, I'm your brother. I'm with you. It is as if to say, listen to what I'm about to say. I'm speaking out of love for you, my brothers and sisters. If any among you strays from the truth. When you first hear that, maybe it sounds like someone has a bit of a doctrinal shift. You know, perhaps... Uh, I don't know, they used to believe in, in believer's baptism, but now they believe in infant baptism or something like that. This is not what's going on here. There's not this little small theological or doctrinal shift. The phrase straying from the truth has a much more holistic mindset. In fact, I think one of the reasons that we, we tend to just go intellectual in this is we tend to think of truth as merely an intellectual activity in our day, shape, you know, in, in our day and time. 
And the reality is for the Hebrew people and the early Christians, who most of them coming from a Hebrew background, when they heard the word truth, they weren't just thinking about intellectual knowledge. That was a part of it. Truth is a path for the Hebrew person. Truth is a path of life. So if you remember, it wasn't that long ago in our study of James, I think it was the end of James 3, we talked about two paths. And James says there's a, a, a true path, a true wisdom, as he calls it, and there's false wisdom. There's a, a false path, bless you. And he explained this. In fact, I think this is one of Lloyd's messages, and he used the analogy of the two paths diverging in a yellow wood, that famous poem. There's the path of false wisdom, which is earthly and demonic and ultimately leads to death. But there's a different path. Also, the path of true wisdom, which is from above, from God, it leads to peace, it leads to wholeness, it leads to life. One path leads to death, one path leads to life. The path you walk is ultimately determined by where you think you're going to find life. You and I as human beings are wired to seek out life, fullness of life. Wherever we think it is, we're gonna go down that path. We're gonna swim down that particular uh, angle in this cave of life, so to speak. Either you believe life is ultimately found in Jesus or you're chasing it somewhere else that seems right to you. Those are the two paths. So when James says straying from the truth, not someone who's having a bit of a, a theological doubt or a, a little doctrinal shift, he's talking about someone losing their way. In other words, they used to have a hold of the only lifeline that would lead them to the surface to breathe oxygen and be saved. And somehow they have lost the rope. James continues this thought. Let him know, this is verse 20 now. So he's saying, you know, if, if anyone brings someone back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is where we have to get into a bit of an interpretational uh, challenge here. There's some debate about how to interpret this verse. The language certainly lends someone to think he's talking about eternal salvation. I mean, there's, there's language in here that, that certainly makes you think that way. Save his soul from death will cover a multitude of sins. Now, we could kind of dig in. What is he really talking about? What kind of salvation is he talking about there? And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to assume for a moment that he is talking about literal eternal salvation. And I think there's a case to be made for that. That's not the only way you could go, but I want to assume that for a minute. Then the question is, well, is, is he meaning you could lose your salvation? So he's talking to the brothers and sisters of the church. He's saying, if anyone among you were to lose his way, were to lose his path, were to stray from the truth. Is James here implying that you could be saved and then get lost again? And then when someone rescues you, your soul's gonna be saved from death and your sins are gonna be forgiven? Well, I, I don't think we can go that route because it's clear from scripture, many verses throughout, that once you have been rescued by Jesus from your sin, your eternity is secure. I don't think he's talking about someone that was saved and then lost their salvation. Here's one way we can reconcile this interpretational challenge. Uh, I, I wouldn't claim this with certainty, but I think it might best make sense of all the evidence, not just in this text, but in the whole letter of, of James together. In every church community, there are men and women who participate in the life of the church, but whose hearts have never actually come alive through faith in Jesus Christ. 
that was true in James's time. It is just as true in our time, maybe more true in our time. Most people in Middle Tennessee, maybe not most anymore, but a lot in Middle Tennessee, they'll, they'll claim to be Christian. They'll, they go to a church somewhere, they identify with Christian faith at some level. I'm sure in our body, there's no question in our body, there are those that participate in the life of our body, but your hearts have never yet been transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not actually a believer. The, now, the trick of this is many times people think they're believers. And why do they think they are? Well, because they're doing the Christian thing. They're a part of a church. You know, they were raised. You know, I was, I was born in the South. I was born in this area. I'm not a Jew and I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. And I believe there's a God in there somewhere and I pray to Jesus. That makes me a Christian, right? There are many who would think they are following Jesus, but there's no life of the Spirit in them. This may be who James had in mind in chapter 2, 19 and 20 when he said this. You'll, you'll remember teaching on this as well. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize that faith without works is useless? That there has to be more going on Besides just saying, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I'm participating in some religious things and I know some Christian language, James is saying, yeah, the demon's got all that down. One of the things I love about fellowship is it's not that infrequent here that, that someone will come up to one of the pastors or, or one of the other folks that volunteer here, or works in the ministries, and they'll say something like this. I've been going to church all my life just thinking I was a Christian. But in recent days or in recent years, as part of my time here at Fellowship, I've realized that my so-called faith was actually more of a intellectual understanding only or, or maybe a religious association. But now I've heard the gospel of grace. And the penny has dropped, so to speak. And I didn't know that I understood before. I didn't know that I'd actually put my faith in Christ before. I'd been just going through some religious motions, but now I'm finding wholehearted life in Jesus. My, and, and, and here's the key, men and women, the transfer of trust from my own religious efforts to the efforts of Christ on my behalf. Now, here's the thing. We cannot know what is in someone's heart. Only God knows. You can't know with certainty who has genuinely put their faith in Jesus and who's just going through the Christian motions. You can't know. I can't know. So when someone turns away from the path of life and goes in a different direction and gets lost, we go and find them. That's what James is saying here. And if they come back, and I love the fact that he's assuming that they will, you know, there, there's sort of this when they come back. When they come back, it could very well be that they're putting their faith in Jesus for the very first time. It could very well be that they're getting saved, they're getting found for the very first time. We don't know. That's not always the case. Sometimes people are gonna be saved, they're gonna stray from the truth in certain ways, they're gonna come back. They've been saved all along, but James is saying there's at least some cases, the way that I would interpret this text, that this is actually their point of salvation. That's how serious this is. By the way, I think it's even more dangerous when someone strays from the truth when they've been a part of a church family where they've heard the truth before because they go that different way and now someone's gonna share the gospel with them, talk about Jesus as the source of life, not all this other stuff, and they're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. It doesn't work. 
Do you see the danger of someone that was in community in the church family claiming to have faith in Jesus who goes down a different path? James is saying, don't ignore that. Go find them. Go after them. According to this passage, we have a role to play. Isn't that fascinating? Of course, salvation is always God's work. Of course, it's only the Spirit who can work in someone's heart to melt a heart of stone, to turn them toward repentance. But through the mystery and grace of God acting through human agency, we get to be a part of it. And I think that in and of itself should inspire and motivate us. So that's the what of the passage. If, you know, it's very simple, these, these two verses. When someone strays from the truth, go find him or her and bring them back. Now we have to get to the why. Why are we so hesitant to do this in our day and age? And why is it that we so rarely try to help someone in this situation? And when we do go to them, when we do plead with them, it hardly ever goes well. It rarely goes well. Why is that? These are questions I want to turn our attention to. I think there's something important that we're not thinking right about. And I want to explain what that is. Um, like any other thinking problem starts in your mind, but it doesn't just stay in your mind. It goes all throughout your whole person. So I'm going to ask if we could put the slide of the heart on the screen. And this will be a review for a lot of you that have been with us uh, through the last fall. We introduced a, a new mission statement, helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, when the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible's talking about the real you, the inner you, the, the, the you that, that, that is deep down the true you. So it is, yes, your emotions, that's what we tend to think about with heart in our vernacular, but biblically speaking, the, the, the word heart has so much more than that. It's your thoughts and your emotions, your desires, your choices. And so when something is off in your thinking, in your theology, in your doctrine, in your thoughts, it impacts everything else. And I want to explain what I think is going on. Just want leave, leave the heart up here while I talk about this for a, a little while. I think the thinking problem that we have that's causing us not to choose to engage people with love who tend to take a different path than, than what we believe is true, I think the thinking problem is we're not thinking rightly about sin. And I'm sure there's a lot more things we're not thinking rightly about, but I want to talk about this one this morning. I think this is a really big deal. In our culture both inside and outside the church, the concept of sin has been distorted almost beyond recognition. I think this is one of the biggest reasons Christianity feels so irrelevant to the broader culture. Sin has kind of been uh, redefined, or, or I would say reduced or simplified to, to this. If you ask most people what is sin, they'll give you some variation of this definition. Sin is breaking one of God's rules. Most people in here, if we were to say, what, what is sin? Well, you know, God sets the rules, and when you break the rules, that's sin. That is not untrue. But that is very much a, a reductionistic way to think about sin. Uh, here's the problem with thinking about sin simply as breaking one of God's rules. Over time, it creates a caricature of God, either as a divine policeman up there writing tickets and issuing fines, or maybe from the, a little bit more of a, a soft and cuddly point of view, a divine Santa Claus making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. And so if, if we're honest, we have these images of God. God's just up there with his arms crossed looking down, waiting for us to, to break a rule and we're going to get zapped. Or, or, you know, he's Santa Claus and you know, yeah, maybe he wants to bless you, but as long as you're sinning, he can't give you those gifts 
because you're on the naughty list, so to speak. A shallow understanding of sin paints this very untrue, very unfair caricature of God as a moral authority who randomly defines right from wrong so he can ding humanity when we paint outside the lines. Tell me that's not our culture's view of God, those who believe in God. And those who have rejected God, why would they not reject him? Like That, that caricature of God's ludicrous. It's not true to what the Bible would teach about the character of God. Now, what does this have to do with the context of obeying this morning's text about going and rescuing someone who strayed from, from the truth? Uh, if you understand sin that, simplest, sim, uh, that simply, you say, well, it's just breaking God's rules. You're not gonna go after someone who's, who's living in sin. Why would you? Just so you can help them get off the naughty list? We have to think differently about sin so that we will actually care. So you know, you move down to the emotion area and desire area, so we'll actually care about our brothers and sisters enough to make a choice to go and engage with them. Now, I wanna very briefly walk through what I think could be a helpful corrective for us. How would we think differently about sin in a way that would result in us obeying this text this morning? Sin is anything that moves us further away from God's good design for his creation and his people. I'm gonna say that again because this is, this is the beginning of a little bit of a shift of how we might think a little differently about sin. I think biblically, from Genesis to Revelation, sin is anything that takes us further away from God's good design for his creation and for his people. What is God's design for his creation? What was his intention for his creation? We look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for that. We look at Revelation 21 and 22 for that. It's peace. That's God's design. And remember, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Biblically, peace, Hebrew shalom, is wholeness, completeness, fullness, everything knitted rightly together, relationships right between man and God, mankind and one another, mankind and the creation itself. Everything is in its proper place. That's the concept of peace, that's God's intention. Now, we don't live in a world like that, do we? Uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it's a book on sin. It's a, it's a wonderful study. And here's how he describes sin. He says, sin is the vandalism of shalom. Isn't that a good word picture? God created this earth in peace, in wholeness and completeness. Sin comes into the world. Genesis chapter three, mankind choose a different path. And it's as if just a spray paint was just spraying it all over and vandalized and graffiti and things are torn apart and ripped apart. And this is the creation that you and I live in today. So therefore, when you think about sin that way, the effects of sin are always the diminishment of life. You're never gonna gain more life by choosing a path of sin. Ever, ever, the effects of sin are less flourishing, less wholeness, more fragmentation, and ultimately death, which is the utter absence of life itself. Talk to anybody that's been choosing a different path for a while and just kind of been ignoring what God says is, is God's good and, and whole design for them and been walking on a different path. Give them enough rope, they're gonna hang themselves. Let them go long enough and, and go find them at some point in time. They're going to have nothing but a sack full of regrets. You're going to say, I chased this because I thought it sounded good, tasted good, felt good. 
and look at the destruction that it left in its wake. This is the effects of sin. Now, the story of the Bible is the story of God's good creation, vandalized by sin, and then the great personal sacrifice God made to rescue his people and restore his creation to the fullness of life he intended. That's Genesis to Revelation. Here's the key point. God hates sin because sin separates us from life. When we, we begin to think more biblically about sin, we begin to feel differently about sin, and then we begin to have a new desire, you see. We begin to desire something better and something different for our brothers and sisters, or ourselves when we're wrestling with sin in our own lives. And then we can make a different choice. You see how your theology affects your whole heart? You think differently. You feel differently. You desire something new and different. You're able to make a new choice. Now, when Josh Bratchley went into that Tennessee cave, he had two things that would keep him alive. You can go ahead and take that slide down. The oxygen tank on his back and the lifeline in his hand. When he lost the lifeline, he only had so many breaths. When someone strays from the lifeline of faith, their connection to God through faith in Jesus Christ, the path of life, they only have so many breaths left before their oxygen tank is diminished. They are a cave diver who has let go of the rope that would lead them to life. We must think differently about sin so that we can feel differently, desire differently. In other words, love, engage men and women out of love and make new choices. I think a lot of our problem, by the way, is some of the lower quadrants of that heart. When we engage with people that are caught in sin, we rarely do it from a place of love. And don't even get us started talking about social media and the interactions that we see and you know, people debating on social media. How much of that's from love? Now, we've talked about the what question this text calls us to do. We talked about the why we're so hesitant to do it. We, we don't tend to think rightly about sin. I'm sure there's other reasons as well. Let's talk about the How? How are we going to change in this? Another question you might ask is, how do all these things come together? The, the right thinking and the desires and the emotion and the choices. How do all those things come together? How does the heart come together in wholeness? There's a beautiful answer to that question. It all comes together in Jesus Christ. He's the only human being who fully understands sin and yet has never experienced it. That means he knows every twist and turn of the cave. He knows every crevice where you and me and our brothers and sisters can get caught, but he is not himself trapped in the cave. And he is able to come and rescue. He is able to be the one that can come and bring life. He traversed the twists and turns and he desires to rescue. In describing his own purpose for coming to earth, Jesus said that he had not come to take something from us. He had come to give something to us. And the thing he came to bring is life. Life itself.
John 10, 10, he says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance, have it overflowing. In other words, what that means is no longer dependent on an oxygen tank, on your own resources, you're gonna get connected straight to the lifeline of life. Now, you and I, in this time between his first and second coming, we're, 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 we are Josh Bratchley getting led out of the cave by Jesus Christ. You see this? We're following him, following his lifeline, his guideline. There will be a day that we will emerge in the surface of the water and we will breathe oxygen unending to cheers and celebrations from those who are there awaiting. In the meantime, we are called, according to this text, to not only hold on to our lifeline, but go back for those who have let go of theirs.